In the legal profession, it can be risky to admit any vulnerabilities, so it's beyond unusual to see a judge of all people step down from the bench to address mental health issues. On today's podcast, we learn why he's doing this and what others in the legal system can learn from him. Hello, you're listening to On the Merits, the weekly news podcast from Bloomberg Law and Bloomberg Government. I'm your host, David Schultz. Sir Richard Bernstein was already remarkable before he took leave from the Michigan Supreme Court earlier this year. He was born into one of the most prominent legal families in the state, but he was also born with an inherited eye disorder and has been blind since birth. Bernstein overcame that disability to not only graduate from law school, but to become a hugely successful disability rights lawyer. And then in 2014, he got elected to the highest court in Michigan. But Bernstein broke new ground this year when he announced he was taking a temporary leave of absence from the bench to seek treatment for situational depression. It's rare for anyone to take this step, but it's especially rare for someone in the legal profession, and for a sitting judge, it's nearly unheard of. Bernstein is now back on the court, and he spoke with Bloomberg Law reporter Alex Ebert about why he made this decision and what it could mean for his future as a judge. Alex also spoke to a number of other people in the profession about why there's still such a strong stigma against attorneys who seek mental health care, and we'll definitely get into all of that. But first, I asked Alex to explain to me who Justice Richard Bernstein really is. Yeah, Richard Bernstein is a unique character, emphasis on the character in the state of Michigan. He comes from a long line of attorneys and is part of the most famous plaintiff-side attorney family in the state. His family is, you know, frequently featured in ballpark advertisements. Yeah, I will say, actually, I talked about this story with one of my colleagues who has lived in Michigan, and he said, oh, yeah, everyone knows Bernstein over there. That's like, you know, they're, they're royalty in the state of Michigan. They are, yeah. So we're talking a extremely successful legal family with basically universal name recognition in the state, especially for sports fans where they advertise and, you know, do some fun projects. And Bernstein took this sort of family tradition and made it his own and said, you know what, I'm going to go into what the family does and I'm going to pursue the law in a way that can benefit people with disabilities. And it was a real struggle. He, you know, went to law school after challenging whether he should take the LSAT. He struggled through school and he went on to do this career where he took on giants, you know, using the ADA to push for accessibility all before becoming a state Supreme Court justice. Yeah. And and I think what amazed me, uh, you kind of alluded to this, but how difficult it was just for him to get through law school, let alone to become a successful lawyer and now judge. Um, Tell me about his process, like how he has to research cases and, um, you know, do his job as a judge. Yeah, Richard Bernstein has a process that he calls internalizing. Internalizing means that he has to, instead of reading material through Braille, he has to memorize the key aspects of certain legal holdings, legal reasoning, and facts so that he can work with the law. In law school, there's hundreds of pages of reading basically every day. But if you were to print that out in Braille, it's about 60 pages, he says, of Braille for every page of a law school textbook. 
That's amazing. I, I had no idea that that's how <laughs> I'm embarrassed to admit. I had no idea that's how Braille worked. Yeah. And because of that, it's just inaccessible for someone who's studying the law. And so what he did is he uses the help of an aide to hear again and again the stories that are told in these cases, the facts of the cases, the names of the cases, and the underlying legal reasoning and case names of things that bolster the arguments. And he uses that and synthesizes it in a way where he can recall dozens of cases at a time, the facts, the key legal reasoning, and that's how he would be able to participate in class. And he's taken that with him to the bench now in the Michigan Supreme Court. Yeah, and let's hear from him. This is Justice Bernstein talking about his own process on the bench. It is a pretty intensive process, um, but it's a process that I signed up for, and it's a process that I do constantly each and every day because, again, I signed up for it. So this is who I am, and this is what I'm sent here to do, and this is basically what I have to focus on in order to get the job done. Okay, but uh, Alex, let's get into the meat of your story, which is that, you know, Justice Bernstein took time off, and he took time off to deal with mental health issues. That's a really, really big deal, and it's very unusual, which we'll get to in a little bit. Tell me about what led him to decide to take this very extraordinary step. Yeah, Justice Bernstein said that a culmination of factors were leading to a lack of joy in his life, and it was interfering with his ability to pursue this dream of his. And those boiled down to three main things. One was this constant pain he suffers from a really traumatic injury he had when he was younger, and it shattered his hip and his pelvis. He was in the hospital for 10 weeks recovering. And because of that, he walks with pain constantly. That was factor one. On top of that, Because he's blind, he said that the pandemic was a truly isolating and awful experience. Yeah, and he talked to you about that and, and, you know, again, just shed light on the things that people who are not disabled never think about. Here's him talking about just the, the basic process of getting food during the pandemic for someone who is visually impaired. I couldn't even really get food. It was very difficult because the apps weren't accessible. And this is when people were really scared. And, you know, it was very difficult. And then literally it was just one of those situations where, you know, I I would go to the same place every day to get my, to get my food. And I had the same thing every day and I had to get special permission to go to this place so I could go and pay for the food and do it in person because I couldn't, you know, use the apps or things of that sort. So then uh, Alex, what was the third factor that led him to decide to take time off? The third factor was some personal trauma that he didn't want to get into. And this is something where, as a journalist, it was interesting because you don't want to push someone necessarily into revealing things they tell their therapist. Um, and I've talked a little bit with experts about this, and and this was actually something that came up constantly because they could not refer to things that you know judges or, or attorneys told them in therapy as well. And so these three things together – you know, basically built up until Bernstein was, you know, facing a a life in which he just wasn't getting that same joy, enthusiasm, and vigor that he needs to accomplish all of the things that he wants to do. But I feel like that's a big deal for anyone in any profession to decide to take time off to deal with mental health. There is still a stigma around that. Uh, But for a judge, 
I mean, that's got to be tremendous. Was there a moment when he decided, you know, despite all of the stigma and despite the reaction I might get from the legal community in Michigan, I'm going to do this? Yeah. So I tried to pinpoint that for him. And he said one day he just he woke up and, you know, we, we got into his routine and it's pretty extraordinary. He wakes up super early to go running every day because he's a, a marathon runner. And he said one day that he woke up and he just lacked that, you know, vigor and that joy that's necessary to do these things. And he just went through his day and he realized, like, I'm not getting out of this what I need, you know, and he says, I'm just not going to live life this way. And so it wasn't as much of like a snap thing as it was a realization that all of a sudden there's this, you know, lack of joy, this sort of shadow over what's going on in his world. That's really interesting. Um, But we've referenced this a couple times about how unusual this is. Let's really get into that. Why is this so unusual? Tell me about sort of the legal profession and the the bench in particular, and how, you know, mental health and taking care of your mental health plays into it or doesn't, I guess. Yeah. So experts say that the reason why this is such a difficult issue is that reputation is all in the legal industry. Let's think about it from the ground up. Law students are worried about getting their first job. Associates are worried about making partner. Partners are worried about keeping their clients. And above all of this, there are judges that have these worries as well, but they're also worried about getting reelected by people. And so if they're seen to take time away from the bench or not be, you know, tough enough or smart enough to deal with the, the struggles that come to judges, they're worried that if society sees them that way, that they're not going to vote for them next time and they can't get to do the good that they want to do on the bench. And so it's this perpetual struggle. And you mentioned that judges have to worry about getting reelected. Of course, there are some judgeships that are appointed. But even in those situations, I have to imagine there's a worry that people will call into question your decisions and the reasoning behind your decisions. I mean, that's got to be terrifying for a judge, for someone to say, you know, oh, this judge who ruled against me, um, that decision should be thrown out because he had depression or something. That's right. Yeah. So judges are worried, basically, that word will get out and it'll impact the reputation, whether or not it's an election or an appointment. And we also have to think that oftentimes judges, like, you know, they, they do sacrifice a lot in terms of, you know, income to take on these jobs often. And frequently, you know, they will leave the bench in order to take more lucrative jobs later to either help kids through college or other things. And so they have to, you know, go on to another career often after the bench. And so that reputation preservation, it's still important. And they're worried, you know, all of these folks are worried that if word gets out, that they're receiving treatment, that it's going to somehow inhibit their ability to work for clients, to work for the causes that, they, that they've that they gone to law school for. Yeah, and I think the, the anecdote that you had in your story that really illustrated this very well is that you spoke with someone who set up an anonymous hotline for lawyers and for judges to call if they're, you know, experiencing mental health problems. And she said, like, the phone never rang. Like, it just no one ever called it. Um, you know, that's kind of speaks for itself. Yeah. And so, you know, states have gone, you know, and really dove into this issue to create these anonymous hotlines and anonymous processes for attorneys and judges to get help, right? They're really pushing into this. But they also admit that, you know, these things are still underutilized. And it's kind of on the legal industry to sort of like take steps 
to engage in this and to utilize these services more so that we can be more efficient and that we can do better service to the public. Now, Bernstein, however, said something interesting, which is that he wasn't as worried about this uh, as he might have been or as other people might have been because the way that society views mental health struggles has changed. Here's him talking about how voters might view his mental health struggles the next time he comes up for re-election. Listen, I think that at the end of the day, when, when, it, when it comes to my election, you know, I'm, I think that this will be a great opportunity to explain it. It will be a wonderful opportunity to educate. Just like I educated people about blindness, I'll be able to educate folks about what it means to have situational depression. And I guarantee you what you're going to find is the vast majority of people are probably going to have suffered it in some way. Alex, I want to know what you think about this. Do you think that the broader societal changes around how we view mental health will allow judges like Bernstein to be more open about their struggles? Or do you think that the legal profession is still going to lag behind and we're, you know, Bernstein will be kind of the anomaly and that we're really not going to see, you know, a big trend toward being more open about this in the future? I think that we're slowly inching somewhere. You know, the experts, the experts say that we're seeing evidence that these programs are being more utilized. So in Michigan, for instance, in the last year, there was a 9% uptick in utilization of lawyer assistance program services. The program is doing, you know, about a quarter more presentations to professional groups. And we're seeing more research and thoughtfulness put into this in conferences and national and international groups. So we're heading in a direction that could be helpful. And the reason why that's important, just to hammer at home, is the judges work for us in a special way. If judges miss the bench, that means that we have backlogs in cases. It means that things get rushed. And there's another thing, too, which research has pulled out, which says that, you know, if a judge is stressed or if they're um, really under it, then they can be a little bit more harsh when it comes to penalties or judgments. And so because of that, if you want an even handed and more efficient, you know, use of justice in the legal system, then we need to have a healthy judiciary that can really support that. Yeah, I guess it makes me think about. What's worse, uh, having a judge with severe mental health problems or having a judge with severe mental health problems that it, who isn't treating those problems? I think it's pretty obvious that the latter is worse, that you know, a judge who is in treatment and who is getting medical care can totally do their jobs, but a judge who is trying to hide it and you know, is trying to, to not receive treatment, that's pretty dangerous. It's like all sorts of, you know, mental health or, you know, addiction problems, right? Individuals with them, they will, you know, work through and do the best they can, right? It's just about helping people be their best selves. And so if we can do that, then collectively we can help the entire legal system as well. And that's what experts say. They say that really it's just about, you know, getting judges the help they need so that we can, you know, help out litigants, defendants, prosecutors, you know, prop up the entire legal system that that keeps your country running. All right, Alex. Well, thank you so much for this. This is a really fascinating uh, story. I really appreciate it. Thanks, David. Pleasure talking with you. That'll do it for today's episode of On the Merits. It was produced by myself, David Schultz. Our editor is Andrew Satter, and our executive producer is Josh Block. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Those nine justices in Washington can be hard to keep track of. That's where we come in. 
I'm Kimberly Robinson. I'm Greg Storr. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. On our podcast, Cases and Controversies, we give you a week-by-week accounting of the Supreme Court. The filings, the arguments, the yachts, and much, much more. Check in on Fridays with Cases and Controversies to find out what's coming up on the horizon at the Supreme Court. Download and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 